This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to a new series of Out to Lunch, the podcast where brilliant people open up to me over a meal at a top restaurant. This whole thing came about because I've always found dining tables to be the ultimate situation for a confessional. Perhaps order a bottle of something decent to lubricate matters, sit back and let them go. Coming up in Series 2, I'll be breaking bread with the likes of Dermot O'Leary, Guy Garvey and Nadia Hussein. But for starters, I've invited along an extraordinary pianist and songwriter who also has a weekly jazz show on BBC Radio 2. It's Jamie Cullum. girl I was dating at the time who um, had had a lot to drink. Did and she I... heckle you? If heckling involves trying to take my shirt off whilst <laughs> I'm singing... <laughs> So I am standing on a rainy street under an umbrella outside a marvellous part of uh, London's restaurant land. I'm outside Brasserie Zadelle and I wanted to bring Jamie Cullum here for one particular reason, which is their cabaret room, the Crazy Cox. Well, it could become a private dining room, which is what we need for such a record, and it has a lovely piano. I should declare my interest. The Crazy Cox is probably where I played most with my jazz quartet. It is a beautiful confection of Art Deco, and Zadel does brilliant French classics. It really is an old-school Parisian brasserie, Berth Bourguignon, Coquevin, all that sort of stuff. It does it really well, and I do know that Jamie Cullum loves his food. Food, music, chat. Let's go inside and get a bit of that. Come sit down. So you've not been in here before? No. I've heard all about it, and I've announced gigs at this place many, many times on my radio show, but I've never had the chance to come here. How would you describe this as someone who's just walked in? Well, I, I, I just said, like, a subterranean paradise, because you're literally underground. But in this... It's very kind of opulent and... Yeah. It can only seat 80. Yeah, So at the, risk, at the risk of being... It needs more than 80 people. <laughs> <laughs> you never get rich in this room. But now, we are eating in here. Great. We have a menu. Great. So you have to choose some food. You might have to tell me what, what you would recommend here. It's sort of French classics. That's the brilliant thing about Brasserie Zadella. Is there somebody once said to me that it's the best Parisian brasserie outside Paris, and then someone else said, and in Paris too. I missed breakfast. Excellent. For this very reason. Excellent. We do approve. <laughs> this is a good podcast, isn't it? You get to eat. Why don't they all do this? I don't know. Some of them just, you know, they haven't worked it out. Do you, have um, you got an English menu? No, I'm joking. Sorry. It's a bad, bad joke. I'll do the jokes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start, please, with the Endive uh, Roquefort salad, please. And then I'm either going to have the 
bourguignon or the stone bass. Right, shall I order and then by that point yeah, you'll exactly. have come to I a conclusion. I was hoping you'd kind of jump in and go... No, no, it's, you know, both are a marvellous thing. I will start with the salad niçoise and then, just because it's kind of a talking point, I'm going to have the choucroute. Yeah, make it that one. Oh, what's a choucroute? Basically, it's sauerkraut with lots of bits of pig that have fallen in. You, you, there's loads of it, so okay, you, you, you can have some of that, whatever, whatever you order. Okay, well, I haven't had a bourguignon for a thousand years, so I'm going to have one of those, please. Thank you very much. Do you want some wine? Yes, please. Red or white? Red for me, please. Pinot Noir? Gorgeous. Nice, soft, light. Thank you very much. Day. Lovely. Pinot Noir and one pick pull for the producer because he thinks he's on the lash. <laughs> I, uh, I think eating with a, a f- someone who is a food critic is always, is, is always quite an interesting situation. The one time I met A.A. Gill was okay. when I, I went to a restaurant with him because there were some mutual friends that we knew and I, I remember him eating like a Viking. This is the late food critic the of late the food Sunday food. Times. He was brilliant and he died too young. And he did, he did indeed. And I just remember feeling slightly out of my depth. Like, you know, what, what kind of conversation are you supposed to have and what am I supposed to order? And then when he literally ordered everything on the menu, everything was <laughs> brought to him and he ate, he ate with his hands. Do you know, I, was... I, I always wanted to write a character and I haven't written fiction for a while, but I was going to write a character and the, the mark of his power was that he ate everything with his hands. Self-assurance, you don't care. Exactly. You just eat everything with your hands. Yeah. So I suggest we just get rid of the calorie <laughs> and uh, you go into the bur- bourguignon. Particularly with your sauerkraut and bits of pig, that'll be... Uh, yeah, you just roll it up. That'll be amazing. Food is... A, I mean, obviously, when people say, oh, I'm into food, I think, well, we all have to eat three times a day. But you do like food. I sorted you, didn't I? You did. With no, I, remember, I remember... The ninth. I, I, I needed a recommendation for uh, Sophie, my wife's birthday... And you did give me an amazing recommendation called The, the Ninth. Yeah, Yam Tanaka's restaurant. I've been back since, and it's so good. I particularly remember I had something that was like, there were little meat hats, which were... <laughs> we should all have meat hats in it our lives, shouldn't it we? Was, it, was, it was a really great meal. I, I thank you for that. But um, Sophie, Sophie Dahl, yeah. your wife of yeah. eight years, nine years? Ah, ten years. Is it ten years? Ten years we've been together. I mean, if I'm really honest, because yeah. you did say it was for her birthday... Mm. Obviously, I wanted to send you somewhere nice, but I was slightly more concerned about getting Sophie somewhere right because she's she cooks. She she's, does. She's written cookery books. She yeah. had a cookery show on BBC Two. She did. Is food in your house a big thing? Is it a performative thing? Definitely, but it always has been even prior to my life with Sophie. So I have quite an interesting background. So I've got kind of Jewish on one side and I've got Indian... That's your dad, isn't That's it? my dad and Indian Burmese on the other side. So food, it was definitely the kind of family that came together with food. But both immigrant... Yes. Into the country. Mm. You knew your grandmother? Was she still alive? I did. Sadly, she, she really got uh, quite bad dementia right around the time I was becoming very, very interested in the past. But I've, I've come to understand a lot more about her. But, for example, if, if we're going back to the food, you know, when I would get to her house, there would always be a chicken soup with every part of the chicken kind of... Bobbing in it. Bobbing in it, like necks, feet, you know, eyeballs kind of popping out that would immediately be slopped out into a bowl. Well, a with classic Jewish chicken soup is, a, is yeah. a very economical dish. It's exactly. You do not waste any of the fowl. And I have taken that totally into my kind of life. So I was making those kind of soups from a really kind of... Just knowing how to make it, I was fascinated by it. Oh, there's wine. Oh, yum. It's one of the actual brilliant things with the screw-top wine bottle, that there's Yum. no chance of them being corked. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but we still get the performance. Yes, exactly. I never is... thought about it like that, but now I will remember. You know. You... Oh, cheers. cheers. Let's yeah, do that. Thank you very much. Cheers. A bit of bread has arrived. Oh, lovely, yeah. Was the experience of writing Gran Torino for Clint Eastwood's film, 
where Kyle Eastwood, Clint Eastwood's son, is... That's not a reasonable way to describe Carl Eastwood because he's a massive jazz musician in his own right. Was that a very significant experience for you? It was the defining experience for me in so many ways as a writer because I don't think I had... I loved to write songs and I thought I could write songs, but it was only after that that I felt like I could call myself a songwriter. I felt like when I contributed a piece of music that worked for that film that satisfied the director... I'm a bit confused. Did Carl Eastwood write the, write the tune, or did you write both bits? Well, it was actually Clint that had the, um, had the original theme. A very simple People theme. People forget that, that he's, a, he, mm. he's not unaccomplished as a pianist. I asked him about this, and he said, when he looks through the lens of the camera, of a scene he's filming, he can hear what the score should sound like. Because he has a musical, he loves music and he has yeah. a musical ear. Obviously, his son is a great musician. So he had the theme idea that da 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 da. And so, with Kyle and his musical um, collaborator guy called Michael Stevens, we kind of fleshed out that bit. And then I took took away the original theme and then wrote the other parts of the music and then wrote the whole lyric and then kind of sent it back to them. And I think that's the way it went down. Did um, you spend time in California to do that with them? Or I, I went and recorded the song in Clint's guest house, in his front room of his guest house, where they, they put piano in there. And he didn't want to do it in the studio because he said he wanted it to sound like you are playing at a jazz club. It's three o'clock in the morning. There's no one else left. Just you, like, there's a couple of chicks in the front row, you know. <laughs> uh, just, like, one of those kind of late-night kind of jazz club scenes. And he said, I want, I want it to sound like that. And second take, and that was the one that was in the movie. But actually, the, the funny thing was, after we recorded that, he, sa- he said to me... I said, oh, what are you doing over the next few weeks? As you would have a conversation with anyone, you're about to say goodbye. He says, oh, actually, I'm coming to London in a few weeks. I said, oh, you're coming to London? I said, and I just kind of blurted it. I said, oh, well, if you want to get together, let me know. Thinking... Yeah, hanging with Clint. Exactly, thinking, well, that will never happen. It was just something, as you would say, as we will say after, at the end of this interview, is, hey, man, yeah, let me know if you're in, uh, you know, Chippen- if you're in Kensal Green. Okay, yeah, Chippenham, in- Swindon, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, lo and behold, about four weeks later, I'm playing Grand Theft Auto <laughs> on my PlayStation in my pyjamas... Uh, With Clint Eastwood? House. No, no, no. <laughs> right. Not quite. <laughs> I'm in a particularly difficult mission and my yeah. phone rings. I don't recognise them. I'm like, oh. Anyway, I listen to the voicemail later and it, it's Clint saying, I'm in, I'm in London. I'm, I've got a free night tomorrow. You're around. Let's go and have dinner. I'm like, what? This is I'm actually definitely having... free now. Well, so I run, down, I run downstairs to, to Sophie and said, what, what, where do you take Clint Eastwood for dinner? What are you supposed to do? You know, where, which restaurant do I call up? And so, um, when did you go? Well, she recommended La Canna Locatelli. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and La Caprice. In the end, I can't remember exactly where we went, but we couldn't get a table at La Canna Locatelli. <laughs> Who was doing this? Who was attempting to get a table for you and Clint Eastwood and failed in this exercise? It was me. Jamie, did you at any point say, hello, it's Jamie Cullum here, I'd like to bring Clint Eastwood? Or did you say, have you got any tables for two tomorrow night or four, whatever? I said that, and then I said, I've got a really special guest, um, and I just want to make sure that we have a nice private table. It's it's the, the, you know, the director and actor, Clint Eastwood, and I hope you don't mind me dropping names, and I know you're full, I know you're a fantastic restaurant, I'm not pulling your leg, and they went, I'm sorry, so we're literally completely full. 
And anyway, so never completely full. Well, there you go. So maybe they just thought I was full of it. But we did not go to Le Can- which incidentally is one of my favourite restaurants in this town. And I tell you, walking into a restaurant with Clint Eastwood, it's quite a feeling. There is, he has a, a magnetism to him that is um, it's so kind of casual. He's so chill, you know, as the kids say. He's just a chill guy. If this situation ever arises again, will you promise to contact me? I will. <laughs> I didn't know you. I, have, I, have, I didn't know you at the time. No, that's true. Mm. I have very few superpowers, but getting tables—that's my superpower. I will. Um, I will remember that. This is unlikely to happen again, sadly. So I saw you play for the first time live, which is ridiculous that it was only about a few months ago at the Cheltenham Jazz Festival. Yeah. And I was accepting your musicianship. We know that's great. It was your control of that audience which staggered me. There was a moment about an hour in where you got the entire audience on its feet in 45 seconds. 2,000 people. (laughs) Thinking back, do you remember the first time you thought, I'm very comfortable here in front of an audience and how old you were and where it was? Well, it certainly wasn't young. I I do have this memory of childhood where I was reluctantly someone who performed. So I did... I did some piano lessons when I was younger, but I did not get on with it at all. It was not something I enjoyed. How long did you do? Compare notes on this. It felt like weeks. Oh, really? But I think it was probably about two years on and off when I was young, but it was between just wanting to play football and do other other stuff. Any grades? I think I failed, like, grade three or something like that. I could hear things, but learning how to play it on the page just seemed like, well, why would I want to play that crap tune? when I can play that crap tune really easily if you just play it to me, and I can play all these other cool things that I quite like. So it just, so I did a couple of things at school, and I always felt like I was kind of forced into it. Like I hadn't quite learned how to say, no, I don't want to do it, because when I was doing it, I hated it. You hated being on stage? Hated, you hated performing? I hated being the centre of attention, like singing a solo. You know, I remember my now dear departed grandmother making me sing The Snowman at her 75th birthday. We're walking on the Precisely. So I just did that and I would like to apologise. It's like Alan Jones reincarnated as a child, has walked into the room <laughs> on acid. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't, so the, the, it didn't connect. And, and I would do it and I would feel like I briefly enjoyed it, but I'd also feel kind of a bit dirty afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but to this day, you looked supremely comfortable on stage. Mm. Well, <laughs> are you are you as comfortable as you look? I mean, one of the things I did notice was um, your willingness to move your wireless mic everywhere, <laughs> like you're, you're moving a you know. I a thought sofa. you were saying my wiry body. Your wiry yeah, body. Yeah, no, it's exactly. the mic. It's I'm sorry, mic, I'm yeah. obsessing by certain things. It's just travelling all over the stage with you. You slam it here. You slam it there. I do. Yeah. So I, you know, you feel when you walk into this room and you you are here to play. You feel, you feel like you want it to go well, you hope you play all the right notes and you hope that you give a good show, but you have a sense of, like, I can do this, I've done this before, I know what I'm doing and I love it. And so that's the feeling I get when I walk on stage. But I definitely have nerves and I also think, well, how is this going to go? But I love that synergy that you get with music and people and the, the sense of communion it creates. And as long as I can kind of grab onto that, I know I can make something happen in a room, particularly in a room like the Cheltenham Jazz Festival, where they can sometimes just be a bit stiff to start off with. And you're just given the permission to, like... Go for it. Go for it and misbehave and, like, oh, they said we couldn't come to the front. It's like, come to the front. If you all come at once, 
they can't stop you. It's like safety in numbers. And they're like, oh, shall we? Someone starts and then they all run. It was, it was extraordinary. It and really was in just about 45, 50 seconds that you got everybody up on their feet. Now, we've got Mr. Jamie Cullum on the podcast. We did it in this room because there is a piano. We couldn't think well, we, of one that we could. We best go and do it then. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we do something together? All right, fair enough. Right. I think we right. get up there. B-flat blues. Why not? The, the whole business of jazz, mm. which is where you come from, starting to get to grips with what that was, how did you do that? If you, you had your two or three years of small chicken in the garden. <laughs> did you ever have a piece called that? There's always They're something all like, called that, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. A little gavotte. Exactly, something like that, yeah. A tiny chicken Tuts. pen in... Rose Garden. Yeah. But actually I'm starting to do all that again, which we can we can we can we can get into that so later for the for the for the for the bonus episode for if we, if we um, the people that we've lost. Um, <laughs> uh, I can't remember. Your your question was your question was jazz. Wasn't yeah, it? so how do you how do you go from those? Well, jazz was a ri- was a riddle. It was a riddle that I needed to figure out and First of all, there was a little bit of jazz kind of knocking around in the kind of family. So there's a bit of Dave Brubeck here, a little bit of kind of G. Kellington. Uh, my uncle was talking about Joe Pass and Pat Metheny. Just so there was, it was there, but I wasn't so interested, but it was... And then I heard Frank Sinatra, I heard Joni Mitchell, particularly those kind of jazzier albums. And you know, my mum definitely had an ear for things with more complex chords in it. But it was a combination... It was a combination of hip-hop. So the hip-hop I was listening to was really jazz-influenced. So A Tribe Called Quest, The Far Side, even Dr. Dre. You know, there were jazz snippets in it, and I was fascinated by the sound of it. It was getting into Kerouac. I hasten to call myself a hip-hop purist, but I, was, I took it, like, really... I took me, at that stage, I took music so seriously, my fandom, not my playing of it. Mm. So whether it was Nirvana, whether it was Iron Maiden, whether it was Rage Against the Machine, ACDC, all these things I was into. And I was this music freak, basically. But I did want to find out what this hip-hop music was made up of. And, of course, there were these snippets of... The samples. Th- yeah, samples of, her, uh, you know, a little bit of Herbie here and there. I kind of made a mental note of all these players... And then I started reading beat poet stuff that I kind of got interested in, in English literature and I found a copy of The Subterraneans and, my, and he was talking about jazz. And then there was also... I was going to my local library a lot and I picked up a copy of the VHS of... Uh, everything you wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask. The Woody Allen film. Yeah. You know, for those who don't know, a VHS is a type of videotape <laughs> that you put into a, a big square box. <laughs> that is precisely that you can watch films on. Basically, because it had the word sex on it, and I could take it out from the library. 
No, I'm literally talking 11 or 12. And I, I thought it was interesting. And then I found his other film, Manhattan, because I was thinking about New York black and white films. Well, that's a hell of a, a, hell of a jump from everything you want to know about sex, which has the enormous breast running across the countryside. Yeah. Uh, and also the man in love with the sheep. Yes. Uh, to Manhattan. Now, the key, the, explain what the key thing about Manhattan is. It's, well, apart it's, from being shot in black and white. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's about New York, but it has this score, which is George Gershwin's A Rhapsody in Blue. And uh, my uh, mum loved Rhapsody in Blue. My brother was starting to play a bit of Gershwin in his piano lessons. And these things were kind of falling into place. And then Harry Connick Jr. turned up on the television. And he was on, like, GMTV or whatever it was called. Hang on one sec. Mm. Do you want to just introduce what you've just placed down oh, yes. for us? So for Jamie, we have the salad and leaf with the Rockford and uh, walnuts. And we have um, Niswa salad. Typical one with the eggs, green beans. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Do you want to hear my great regret story? Go on. Early 1989. These are my hands here. Yeah, go for it. You are, actually, picking up the Ondi. Well, Ondi leaves look like little boats, don't they? In fact, it's perfect. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to go in with my fork because I'm just so uptight. (laughs) Early 1989, I'm in New York and I'm staying at the Algonquin Hotel. I've been sent as a young journalist and I've booked in. I'm known to my editor. I've booked into the only hotel I've ever heard of. I know what's coming. Which is the Algonquin. Yeah. And uh, because my parents stayed there. I'm in the bar. The the bar at the Algonquin is very famous. I said, is there anything interesting in the the music room? The oak room at the Algonquin was then a very big thing. He said, yeah, there's this young guy playing. I've never heard of him before, but apparently he's really good. His name's Harry Connick Jr. And so I made a mental note to book in one night. I didn't book in one night, but Rob Reiner did. And that's how Harry Connick Jr. came to do the score to When Harry Met Sally. Wow. I, I felt such a dick <laughs> when I realised what I had missed. I could have seen Harry Connick Jr. live yeah. just in the moment before. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's interesting you mentioned the Algonquin because actually right before I got signed, I did a month there, purely having known about it through Harry as well, but also... My, what, in the Oak Room? In the Oak Room before it closed, yeah. Um, because it was still like a real kind of breeding ground for, you know, obviously Diana Krull played yeah. there, Peter Sincotti. Um, it's gone now and it's a great tragedy that yeah. it's gone. It was a, a terrible, uh, unbelievably exposing room for any musician. It's tiny. You know, it's, it's probably, you can fit 80 people in there, but it is a, qu- a third of the size of this room, I would say. I mean, going back to what you said earlier, I think partly one of the reasons why I have a sense of stagecraft, just because I've done every type of gig going, whether it's in a rock band or in a jazz club, a cabaret room, a funeral, a bar mitzvah, you know, playing to one person, playing to no people. Can you people. play the Hatikva? Yeah, <laughs> not for many years, but we, we, let's see if we could get to that. Um, but, I mean, ha- Harry was, was that kind of... He was the kind of bridge uh, and the kind of beats that I was recognising from... Not only hip hop, but also drum and bass, all that stuff I was listening to as a teenager, and just all these, these kind of these things kind of flew into my world at the same time, and kind of my head exploded, and I just there was no looking back for me really. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. 
Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You went to Reading. Mm. Not the furthest from Chippenham you could have gone, did you? No. Did you actually live at home when you were there, or did you...? No, so actually... Well done. It was, uh, it was funny because I had a year out first and yeah. I spent quite a lot of that time in Paris. Of did all you? places, yeah. Playing? Exactly, yeah. Um, well, I just went out of pure curiosity. I, I thought at the time I was going to be a writer, so I wanted to go and hang out where, like, the writers hung out. So you thought, if I'm going to be a writer, I must go to Paris and have lofty thoughts in garrets? I was pretentious enough without, well... I think it's fine to be I just like was, that. I just loved the, I loved the idea of it. I just loved the idea of it. So I went, I stayed in the youth hostel and um, ended up meeting some really interesting people. No, not, yeah. not for a year. I met some girl. I stayed with her for a bit who lived in Paris. I slept on the floor of, uh, of the, one of the couches at Shakespeare and Company for a few nights. Shakespeare and Company on the left bank. Yeah. The famous bookshop that published the original of James Joyce. And, yeah. That and the, very place, yeah. And you slept on the sofa there. How did I that did. happen? I played, I played one of their poetry readings and I wasn't really playing very well at that point, but... You know, that's a brilliant detail. Mm. Oh, yeah, and I slept on the sofa at mm. Shakespeare and mm. Company mm. after playing one of their beat readings. I mm. know, oh, exactly. I mean, I literally ticked all my kind of boxes at that time as well. But... I um, God, it must have been brilliant being a struggling. I artist. was doing some gigs during that year, um, just in local pubs around the kind of West Country. I'd hooked up with some interesting people, and the truth is, why I went to Reading is because I just started to get the odd gig in London, and I thought, well, Reading's more affordable, and uh, um, they've offered me a good place to do English lit, and so I went. I went to Reading, and I just would go in and see my brother and stay with my brother who was living in London at that time, and was just starting to kind of fiddle around playing a bit more, and also I had loads of gigs around Oxford, and just, so I, I, my bills were paid just by playing three or four gigs a week through, through uni. At some point, you must have developed the confidence to know you had a talent for this. And so, uh, you, I, I, you know, I've seen you talk, I've listened to you, we've met a few times, um, you, you do a very, very good line in modesty. <laughs> so if we could just abandon that just for a minute. <laughs> At what point do you think... Do you know what? I'm all right at this. It I'm would normally be like halfway through a gig, a bit like you saw at Cheltenham, where yeah. you feel like you've got everyone in the room. That would be it. It wouldn't be before I went on. It wouldn't be as soon as I opened my mouth. I didn't open my mouth and think, oh, my God, you've got a great voice. I wouldn't sit at the piano and go, oh, my God, you're a great piano player. But there'd be something that would happen about halfway through a gig where I just noticed that a room that was full of people just chatting to each other had was suddenly had turned. I'm like, OK, this feels good. And I met Jeff Gascoigne, the bass player, who's obviously now, he's like a top-level kind of... He's about as good as you can get in terms of, you know, I mean, he plays lots of things, but acoustic bass. So I met him. Suddenly I started having this kind of... There was a bit of knowledge, like I started turning up at Ronnie Scott's to sing with Jeff and things like that. Do you remember your first gig at Ronnie's? Only too well. 
and it does not have the trajectory that you expect. No, it doesn't. Excellent. Tell yeah. that story. I love a story of a catastrophe, which is what you seem to be heading towards. The first time I was asked to sing at Ronnie Scott's was with Jeff, with his band. I was ter- Ben Castle on saxophone and, you know, other great players, Martin Shaw on the trumpet. So really oh, great wow. people. And okay. You know, I'd, I'd already sung on Jeff's album and I was already slightly overruled by the whole thing, but he asked, he said, will you come down and sing at my album launch? And I did, and there was this girl I was dating at the time who um, it wasn't going so well with and we'd kind of broken up and she managed to turn up at the second set and, shall we say, had had a lot to drink. Did and she I, heckle you? Mm, if heckling involves trying to take my shirt off whilst I'm singing... <laughs> And this is your first gig at Ronnie, the first appearance, first at Ronnie's. appearance at Ronnie's got. So she was thrown out. I thought I was going to get thrown out, but the Ronnie's bouncers, I said, I'm so sorry about that. I, they said, oh, no, that was amazing. We loved it. <laughs> I said, that's proper Ronnie Scott's like that. It still had the kind of Ronnie Scott... Old, I mean, I love, I love Ronnie Scott's as it is now, don't get me wrong, mm. but it still had a slightly seedier kind of vibe to it. And they were... At that point, I think I got a lot of respect from them um, it, was, it, was a, it was a moment that I will yeah, I, yeah I've never told that story ever because it's too embarrassing but I feel like you know I'm, I'm going to be 40 this year it's, it's time it's time it's, it's time, time to tell story. that well thank yeah. you for telling it here here's your birth bourguignon which is a big it's part fantastic. of all the good things in gravy I'd love to see you eat that with your hands you, you, well I, I will try if you'd like me to um, <laughs> I'm only moving a space on the table because I know what's heading my way which is it comes, oh, on, it comes on its own thing. pattern so that goes there oh it's a beautiful looking arrangement of Piggy vegetables things. and pig. Yeah. Yum. And is there Dijon mustard there? Yes, there is. Because it does kind of need it. This will set you up today. Yeah, exactly. You're, fortunately, I don't have, you're, 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 you're mostly it. Am I? Yes, today. The singing is, you know, you play a beautiful piano, but it's, you have this hell of a voice. Did you discover it or did you know it was there or was it just something that you had to do because somebody had to sing the words? If you're playing a cocktail piano somewhere yeah. and you run out of songs you know how to play the tune to, you go, well, I can kind of sing this one, so you just kind of do it. So that's really how my singing career started. I didn't desire to be a singer. I wanted to be Bill Evans, you know, kind of head down on well, the we piano. Well, want to know? be Bill Evans. Exactly, no <laughs> shit. Well, no, I never have to sing because I, you know, I sleep with the singer. Got it. Well, that's, 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 a, that's a good arrangement. Yeah, it is. Mm. It is. It's, it's, it's easier, except when it comes to childcare. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah we, don't, we don't have that. We don't have that issue of my my relationship. The, the yeah. Sophie never performed with you. Well, I had mean, she um, performed that's, with you? That's, that's how we met. Oh, she was singing at a charity event. So she she has a beautiful voice. She's not known for her singing, but she has a beautiful voice. And it was a charity event that we met at. I was playing piano and she was singing. That's how we met. What was the tune? Actually? I think it's going to rain today. Um, the Nina Simone version, which she chose, which I was immediately like, wow, this. This is someone cool. And so were you sitting there playing and staring across the piano thinking, blimey? Well, there's a picture that I posted on my Instagram that, um, you know, it's one of the few instances that a paparazzi photographer has recorded something I'm, I'm happy about because it's a picture of me literally playing the piano, kind of staring with my mouth kind of... Like, have you seen that film, The Mask? Mm. Yeah, kind of Jim Carrey Where the tongue style. drops yeah. out of the Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that moment is forever captured in... Um, this is delicious. This is precisely what I want. Um, I think it's fair to say 
They've gone for the full-on private dining room portion of Berth Burgundy. I'm very happy. <laughs> well, if, if this is how you normally uh, get served, then I'm, I'm going to join you on all your other podcasts. Oh, are you? All right, that's fine. Do you fine. need a straight man? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, OK, somebody it. else. Yeah, perfect. You know, they're, 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 they're great talk shows where there's two of them. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and there's loads of eating going on. There's loads of eating. And red so, wine. Uh, it should be said that w- this is actually very rare. They never really serve the full meal inside the Crazy Cox. And the is at the other end of the room, which is also extraordinary. Taller feels to me like a, a very eclectic album which touches, goes in a whole bunch of directions. Is that a problem marketing-wise, do you? Oh, definitely, yeah. I think I've... I've I, 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 commercially, you do yourself a disservice by... It would be much easier for me to kind of drop an album into that kind of, you know, jazz, pop, big bandy kind of world that I think a lot of people associate me with inter- commercially, and I think I didn't willfully not do that, but I wanted to be a songwriter, and I think songwriting if you say i'm only going to write songs in the style of you know there's one song on taller which is called you can't hide away from love which is mm. very much a kind of you know a ballad in the you know my dreams irving berlin rogers and hart cold porter it's very much in that zone yeah. but that's because that's what that song told me it needed to be the risk is if you if you do try to do that you're going to head into parody or pastiche well rather... the risk is i won't have a good time well there is and that. that's been my mo from day one it's only be, and you know, if I'm going to bother to do this, it's the reason I started my radio show. It wasn't to kind of extend my brand. It's because I love meeting musicians and talking about music. And, uh, you know, I made this album taller because I wanted to express something more personal, but also focus on so- songwriting and to contribute a song that pays homage to Prince about the pop star Usher, along with creating a ballad that feels like it could be off a, you know, um, in the wee small hours of the morning, uh, Frank Sinatra record, is, was just what the songs told, told me they, they needed to be. You um, need to try some of the shukri. Or maybe oh, you don't yeah, if you're no, looking no, at I going do. gnarly what, bits no, of no, I'm, I'm totally up for just try a bit of everything. Yeah, yeah, go on. Great. Thank you. You have to, because yeah. I, I left it there and, uh, in the coming. expectation you'd take it. I've just eaten an entire beef bourguignon as well, so... Yeah, yeah, um, no, I'm, I'm liking your style. Good, thank you very much. Um, that's a great compliment. How long did it take you to write Taller? Has it been a, a couple of years? Mm. Well, I did start about four years ago, but I ended up throwing away everything I'd, I'd started because I felt like the songs were not... I went through quite a, a period in the last five years of... I felt like my life changed quite a lot, kind of grew up quite a lot in the last five years. I don't quite it, know why that was. Is it not... Simply because your kids grew up to an age where they start talking back to you. I think it's probably that, and I think just being in a, relationship, a long-term relationship and I kind of realising I need to open up a bit more in, in, in that kind of context. Um, Sophie's a very open person. You know, if she's feeling something, she'll tell you, and I, I don't know whether that is something that I, I was very good at, and I think kind of opening up a lot more. Um, it, I needed to... The music that I was writing, it felt like at that time that I wasn't writing music that reflected that. They felt, felt like the songs were constructed well, lyrics all fitted together, but I just felt, like, just felt like I needed to put something out there that, was, that just went a bit deeper, that, went, that touched on things that were maybe harder to say. There's a moment in one of them, and forgive me for not remembering which, which of the songs it is, where you say, I hope this will reignite my career. Hmm. Have you had the fear, Jamie? <laughs> Has there been the fear over the past few years? I think to delve into one's psyche and think about the things that sometimes you think about in the middle of the night, I think it's important to be honest. And, of course, there are times where you think, oh, my God, you know, well, this, is this going to work? 
You know, am I raising up my children right? Am I, is my career going to reignite, you know? Because there's no... If you, if you follow the kind of career path that you like in the I'm secret, liking the... the yeah. Well, there's, there's more of it. The way I can console myself in that regard is that there is always yeah. a job for a piano player. And I think my ego could cope with playing smaller rooms if that's, what, if that's how it went down. You know, I, I go and see Georgie Fame playing concert halls and then playing, you know, clubs. And I just think, he's just... That's what he does. And I've never spoken to him about how... how he, I just see someone who plays. It's just what, what he does. Do. And I really... I, don't, I, 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 I admire that so much. But I also know that I have a, a, a level of curiosity that if I did want to... You know, I'm fascinated by psychology and science and... You know, all sorts of things. I, I, I would... You'd be interested to find out. Oh, yeah. So how, so how was your birth burger, Neil? Can you tell by my plate? I can. Um, do you avoid the carbs just out of a... No, absolutely, absolutely just not. Just good. I had two of yours. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's absolutely true. Absolutely delicious, yeah. Would it be wrong to order the, uh, uh, the steak a la Bordelais for dessert? If you could do that, I'd be really, really impressed. Oh, no, I could. Could you? Yeah, I could. <laughs> I'm an endless pit of ability to eat. What is an eel flottant? It is a soft meringue and a big puddle of custard. <laughs> it's really good. Brilliant. I don't think I've ever had one of those before. An eel flottant. So we've got a rhubarb, a rhubarb and apple crumble, we've got the profiteroles, we've got the crepe. Ta, ta, ta. You're doing Cheesecake. this like a man who lived in Paris for right. a year. Do you think so? Because it is actually all in French. Chocolate mousse. Tartu citron meringue. Yeah, is that a bit, could That's that a... be a, a lemon meringue tart? Yeah. yeah, I think it would it's be. It's il flottante. Is the, so actually, this is, this, is, this is good, is it? The il flottante? I think if you've never had one... Oh, I'm going to bloody well have one then. And I'm going to be really traditional and have the creme brulee. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to stick my spoon in your creme brulee, if that's all right. <laughs> you filthy bastard. that's probably what I was going to have. <laughs> but there you go. Well, Having right. an ill flottant out of pure curiosity. Do you want to play something? We can play, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure after two kilos of beef bourguignon. Um... Right. I think we right. got up there. What works for you from Taller? I could do that song we were talking about, the kind of more, more, more jazzy-ish one. Telling you you can't hide away from love I'm telling you now don't mess around with love It'll give you two black eyes And discolor all your skies I'm telling you you can't Hide away Telling you now don't pick a fight with love I'm telling you you won't last around with love It'll have you on your back It'll break into your flat 
I'm telling you, you can't hide away from love. Like a man off the wagon who's found the mini bar key. When your ex-raver stumbles into your warehouse party. Until I'm gasping for air Cause there's no love without despair I'm Telling you to throw on the clothes of love Telling you they're worth it, the woes of love It'll shake you to the core Leave you crying on the floor I'm telling you, you can't Hide away Dessert is going to come here. Dessert I'd entered the room. As ideally, you were... what you need after you've played some music as well. Your floating islands are heading this way. <laughs> that is a f- île flottante. It is an île flottante. It is quite literally a floating island. Wow. Rather pretty as well. It's got wow. a whole bunch of sort of pink stuff on top of the Beautiful. custard lake. Beautiful. I'm very excited about that. And now a word from our sponsor, which in this case is me. I've got a new book out. It's called My Last Supper, One Meal, A Lifetime in the Making, in which I attempt to answer the one question I've been asked most often, what would my last meal on earth be? I go out in search of the ingredients. It does include pig. And I tell the stories behind them. It's available now in hardback, ebook, and audio formats. And I'm also on tour with a live show based on the book. For tickets and info, visit jrayner.co.uk. And now back to Out to Lunch. Tell you also, Ray, which is that you listen to other people before going on stage. Oh, yeah. You uh, put together a playlist for... Well, first of all, one of my other jobs is being on the radio. That is true. And so I'm normally, like, just making sure I've got everything ready for next week's show because um, it's easier to do that when I'm out on the road and not kind of subjecting my family to, you know, uh, everything that's happening on my radio show. But also, I have this addiction to audio. I am a fan. It's, it's, it's one of the things, that, you know, reading, listening to music, listening to people speak, whether it's audiobooks or podcasts, these are the things that I, I need to feed me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rabid, rabid consumer of other people's music. I want to know what people's mean. And I, I, one of the things, I've, I've had the chance to meet Elton John a few times and I noticed that is something we have in common. He's a rabid consumer of other people's music. Is he? Absolutely, yeah. He wants to hear what people are doing. He wants to, I want to know. 
This is really nice. <laughs> My floating island of, of sugar is... Is the outside yeah. crisp meringue and then it's soft on the inside? Soft on the inside. No, I'm, I'm loving it. Please, help oh. stick, your, stick your spoon in, because I'm going to do the same thing. All right, brilliant. Oh, God, that's good. Mm. Cranberry good too. Have you just seen the way I hoover that up? You okay. did. Yeah. You, you did, did you think I was going to be a non-eat... What did you think of... What oh, no, I it? absolutely... You knew I'd be someone who liked to eat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... Um, <laughs> don't take this the wrong way, but A... Well, A, I'd already sent you to, you know... A good a, restaurant. A good that's restaurant. True. Yep. Um, and B... You're married to Sophie Dahl. I mean, that's true. That, that cannot be a relationship built exactly. on enough for me, thank you. Exactly, that's, that's very true. That's you're not correct. how it's going to work. Going back to this Cheltenham gig, one of the things Loz, your bassist, said afterwards when we were talking was he said it was a slightly unusual gig because you had a set list. Yeah. And I said, are you fucking joking? Are you, do you, he went, no, for years we'd go on stage without a set list. Is this true? It's totally true, yeah, yeah. What? You must liked, have known liked, what your opener was. Most of the time, yeah, yeah. Most of the time we'll know how we're going to f- start and how we're going to finish, but what happens in between depends on how I feel. You're so looking you're... at me with utter, <laughs> utter confusion. Well, well, confusion, but also just staggeringly impressed, because this also requires that everyone in your band knows the entire possibilities of the set list. Oh, they don't always need to know. They can join in if they know it, and if they don't know it, they can not play. I just like to feel that gig can go anywhere, and I think... You know, obviously tunes have a form. If there's, if there needs to be something longer that happens in it or an outro or anything, I just feel that's the way it should be. And I think audiences love that sense of things maybe not quite working or like reaching for something that is, is different. I've always loved those moments in gigs myself as an audience member. So is it actually a kind of item of faith that if you start to get very, very structured, overly structured, you'll lose something along yeah, the way definitely but there have been more it tends to be more structured around the beginning when I've got an album campaign kind right. of starting because we're learning new songs but then gradually it all just falls apart and I'll call anything <laughs> you'll call everything and it's not it's not from being just so ridiculously loose that I, I want it to be ramshackle it's just I think if you've got great musicians on stage people want to see them be challenged and yeah. sometimes I'll start something you'll see like the bass player and the drum looking at each other going this song and then they'll kind of join in and maybe they'll join in and actually think it's a different tune but it will become this amazing mishmash of things I love that stuff well I love what what was it called the um, songs project the uh, oh the song society song society explain what the rules to the song society were well the rules are I've probably forgotten them all already but basically we've got an hour to learn a song so we'll arrive in the studio we'll we'll make sure the studio's set up obviously we'll go right we're going to cover we did Uptown Funk we did Uptown Funk actually you retweeted that, didn't you? That's right, yeah. So we're like, okay, let's, let's learn it. And, and, you know, for me, it's normally just like finding a song that I think I'm kind of fascinated by, basically. So normally that's like a modern pop song. I'm, but I you're not pop. allowed to have worked on it before. No. It's got to be in that hour. Yeah. So you've got an hour in which to arrange, learn, arrange. Yeah. It was completely inspired by a moment that changed my entire career, which is when I went to do the live lounge with Joe, when Joe Wiley was yeah. doing it on Radio 1. And uh, it was when I got nominated for a Brit. And I think people were like, oh, he's this jazz guy. He doesn't like pop music. And they said, oh, we want you to do a joke cover of 50 Cent's In The Club. Do you know that song? I'm like, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I know that song. I know 50 Cent is. So actually, I quite like to do a cover of that brilliant Pharrell song, Frontin'. Can I do that? And they're like, oh, you know that song? I'm like, well, yeah, yeah I know it. And we worked it out. Me, Jeff and Seb worked it out 
45 minutes before. They watched us work it out. We played it live on Radio 1, and Pharrell ended up loving it, and I ended up working with him in Miami, <laughs> right? So it's good. Joe played it to Pharrell. Um, and I think when you have that, again, it goes back to the kind of training you have as a jazz musician, or at least the understanding, is that, like, you thrive on the moment, mm. where you create music in the moment. And so that's what the Song Society is about, really. Now, right at the beginning of this lunch, you indicated that something was moving on in regards to music education. Yeah. What are you doing? Are you finally learning to read? I can't. I am. Read. No, I'm, I, I am actually. I, I jumped far ahead because my ear was far ahead. Um, and I was doing complicated things long before I understood them. And now I'm kind of going... And I, Bill Evans would always talk about doing the building blocks of learning your craft, really just like nailing the basics, you know, the foundations mm. of the house, then building the, you know, the structure of the building, then adding the bricks, then adding the, you know, the cladding or whatever, whatever you're doing to a building. But you threw and up I, your bivouac and I now was, you're finally furnishing it. I put, my, I put my, my sky satellite dish up there. I put the Wi-Fi in before the bloody house. So I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do that now, but not to prove anything because it's just bloody interesting, really. It is, you know. Yeah. And what else are you going to do with your time on this earth? I think that's a brilliant note in which for me to say, Jamie Cullen, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. Jay, any time. Oh, really? Yeah. How about this time next week, then? Sounds great. All right. Perfect. If you enjoyed that, and I really hope you did, then you can help yourself to more episodes from Series 1 wherever you get your podcasts. Do hit subscribe, share, and if you could leave behind a generous five-star review, it really helps others find us and makes me like myself a little bit more. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The theme music was written, arranged and performed by Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg, with additional music in this episode written and performed by Jamie Cullum. Sound recording was by Paul Brogdon. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The producer is Selena Ream. And the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's comedian, novelist, writer and presenter... David Baddiel. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone's life, really, any thinking person, should be plagued by regret. Regret.